This is the Education Gadfly Show. Great to have you on the microphone. And he sort of resembles the Wizard of Oz, actually. Okay, he does. There you go. Well, and... What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checkerfin. Thank you very much. Glad to fly around again. And also joining us, Checkers and my colleague, Andrew Scanlon. Andrew, welcome to the show. How's it going, Mike? First time on the show here. Andrew, you know, has been behind the curtain all this time as our producer for several years now. So great to have you on the microphone. And he sort of resembles the Wizard of Oz, actually. Okay, he does. There you go. Well, and what Checker and Andrew have in common is that they both published a book this week. It's the same book. but um ching their co-authors and it's called learning in the fast lane the past present and future of advanced placement congrats guys on Thank the big book much. release Thank you very much yeah yeah this is very exciting there's already been a, a nice column by jay matthews you guys have been writing about the book in ed week and city journal city journal and education week and all over the place it yeah. feels like yeah and we've got a terrific graphic up on the website as well, produced mm-hmm. by our friends at the Hoover Institution, which Ooh. is a really, really cool thing about AP and about the book. Yeah. All right. We'll check all that out, folks. So, yes, this is a shameless self-promotional day uh, because we have a new book out by Fordham. You'll notice, by the way, lots coming out lately. Robert Pendicio's book, of course, last week, which has gotten a ton of attention as well. And now this one, we're going to talk all about it in Ed Reform Update. All right, guys. So Checker is well known as being a critic, a gadfly for over 40 years. Most education policies and reforms have come under your thumb in one way or another. I actually remember you publishing a book on preschool that had a bulldozer on the cover. Okay. So that tells you something. Right. Uh, And yet here in this book, it is overwhelmingly laudatory. So tell us, first of all, what, what is it that makes Advanced Placement such a successful program in your view? A bunch of things, actually, but uh, key ingredients are 60 years of pretty much unbending rigor and academic quality, which we can't say that about much in American education. So that's a very important thing is that it has stood as a gold standard. It is the closest thing that high schools in America have to a gifted and talented program. And it's big now. It's three million kids take AP exams each year in the United States. This is a big number. And look, Andrew, this was a program that was well known as being for elite private schools and elite public schools, the Exeters and the Whitmans and the others around the the country. But a few decades ago, it started to get serious about serving low-income kids and working-class kids too. Yeah, really after the 60s and going into the 70s, 80s, I mean, the last two decades in particular, the amount of the numbers of kids from low-income backgrounds, kids of color or participating in the program has just ballooned. So we talk about that a little bit in the book. And, and look, we at Fordham have been concerned at times about whether that expansion, whether there'd be some pressure to lower standards, right? Especially in high schools that had already been doing AP. If there was pressure to, as people say, get rid of the gatekeepers, the requirement that teachers recommend students for AP or that kids had to qualify in some way. There was a lot of pressure from Jay Matthews and others to let down that and let basically anybody in who wanted to take a crack at it was up for the challenge. And look, we were worried that that might come with some negative consequences for the kids who really were prepared. 
But you dig into that, and is it fair to say that you don't find much evidence of that? The veteran AP teachers get, many of them, a little bit antsy about the much more diverse student body that they're now finding in their classroom, because instead of all being kind of kind of well-put-together, eager learners, some of them are, are kids with a, not a lot of experience. Uh, they may be smart, but they've got very little experience in this kind and, of... And, and to be clear, diverse uh, academic... Diverse academically. This yeah. is not a, a race comment. This is kids yeah. who are not traditionally high achievers, let's yeah. say. So the teachers have a tougher job of, and some of the veterans don't like that, but the new ones don't seem to notice the difference. And in time, that will wash out of the system. But there's pretty good evidence that standards have not declined. There's not only some rigorous quantitative research by Nat Malkus at AEI on this point, but there's also, just look at the score, the trajectory of AP scores. Actually, as this thing has gotten bigger, the average AP score has declined slightly. Mm-hmm. Which is what you'd expect if the standard is being held, right? And for Further evidence and a major challenge for the program right now is that a lot of the newcomers to AP aren't getting very good scores on those exams. They're getting into the classrooms, they're taking the exams, but they're not getting very good scores. If the thing really were being dumbed down in order to benefit them with scores, you'd see them getting better scores than they're getting. Yeah. I want to come back to that in a minute. You have a great piece in the Gadfly this week that tries to take the lessons from AP and apply it in other places. What are some of those things that seem to be working well for AP that maybe we could replicate elsewhere? Let me say that, first of all, it's demand-driven. This is growing largely because parents and kids and, to a degree, teachers want there to be more of it. It's not being pushed by government. It's being encouraged in some cases by state and local governments. But this is something people want more of in their kids' school. It's not something they resent somebody forcing on them. So I think that's one key point. Yeah, it's something that kids themselves also recognize can be a boon to their transcript, can help them get into college. They're aware of the benefits they could possibly get through college and beyond. It's one of the few occasions where we have an education reform that seems to be popular for many teachers, many parents, many families, many students themselves. Tangible benefits with, for kids that with, succeed at Right, it. with tangible benefits. I mean, that's huge, right? Because the student, as you say, it gives them something to put on their college application, but also they can earn credits. It means they can save money, they can save their parents' money. It seems to me, and you write about this a little bit, that there's got to be something similar we could do in career and technical education where you have an external examination. You could do that through some of the high quality credentials out there. Also, you could then make the case that this is something that comes along with a financial benefit. It's just somehow if we could brand it, you know, you almost think about advanced placement as a brand indicates college prep, you know, and what could be a brand for CTE? That's not CTE, but some other brand, maybe a nonprofit that came up with a small set of CTE classes and credentials that could have some similar panache. With the emphasis here on the nonprofit, because another of the assets that AP has had for 60 years is that it's not a government program. It is essentially run by a large nonprofit organization. And so in addition to being optional for schools and kids and parents, it's not a government mandate. And therefore, it's largely immune, not totally, but largely immune to politics as we know them. Yeah. And it is amazing, by the way, that it's been all through these years and it has avoided a lot of the craziness that has infected both high schools and also universities. And it's incredible to me that through all the identity politics stuff or everything else in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and today, it has remained pretty it's darn good. Pretty darn good. It's cropped up a little in the history curriculum for AP. The U.S. history and now world history have yeah. had their share of culture wars as to what's going to be on the exam, basically. 38 courses, I would say 35 of them have been almost yeah. immune. All right. So let's get a little tougher now and say, okay, so look, on the whole, this is a great success story. But in terms of anything on the downside or failures, I have a question. One would hope that if AP becomes the heart of the high school curriculum, at least the college prep high school 
curriculum, it might have some influence on the curriculum for younger kids so that more young people get to junior or senior year of high school ready to not just take an AP class, but succeed in it. And as you say, Checker, you know, there's a lot of young people today coming into these classes and they take the class, they take the test and they get ones or Mm. ones and twos. Why is this not having more of an impact on the middle school curriculum or the elementary school curriculum? Why aren't more districts saying, okay, we really want to get kids ready for AP calculus or AP English or, you know, some of the other courses. And so we've got to get kids on that trajectory. That doesn't seem to really happen yet. Short version is that there's not much vertical integration in the curriculum. Yeah. yeah. And some, some schools we saw and we profiled some of these in our case studies, they are talking about AP before the high school grades. And it's in those schools where they really do sort of use it as an engine in the school to drive progress before kids are even taking AP exams mm-hmm. or taking AP courses that we see a lot of progress in those scores when they get to high school. Mm-hmm. College board recognizes this. They have, they brought out a pre-AP sort of trial courses just this year. Just this past just, year. Just, just this past this year. is the second year. But mm-hmm. that's ninth grade. That's not middle school. Yeah. And they used to do, they had the springboard program yeah, right? which, that was kind of like this, but that's again, right. That's a college board initiative. I mean, you would just think the question would be, hey, if, if we're serious about AP, it can't just be an end of high school thing. But then we're getting into a problem, like then we're getting into a, a problem, which is what can AP do should it should it fix everything? We're getting to a point there where we're talking about the entire education system. And then we're getting to a point where we're asking a lot of college board yeah, and AP. Places in our experience, in our case studies, the places that have done this best actually are charter schools where essentially K-12 is a unified school mm-hmm. as opposed to three different schools, elementary, middle, and high school. Mm-hmm. If you're a unified school, then you can look at the kid all the way along in the curriculum all the way along and run it in a synchronized and integrated fashion, then it's possible. And some of the charter schools do that. All right. We will leave it there. Folks, check it out. Learning in the Fast Lane, the past, present, and future of advanced placement by Chester E. Finn Jr. and Andrew E. Scanlon. Thank you, Checker and Andrew, for coming on the show. Princeton University Press. Princeton (laughs) University Press. Very good. Okay, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Also joining us now is David Griffith. We didn't have room for you last time because we had Checker and Andrew both on in the earlier Ooh, segment, but house. welcome back, David. There's only room for so much personality on any uh, given podcast. Yes, like. indeed, indeed. So what do you think, man? Everybody around here has been writing books, publishing books. Uh, you know, Robert got a New York Times book review. Yeah. Checker and Andrew this week, a Wall Street Journal write-up from Jason sweet, Wiley. Sweet. Uh, so Amber, David, uh, we're, we're just counting out studies around here, Mike. It doesn't leave a lot of time for book writing. Have you seen the studies, Mike? <laughs> they are books. They're disguised as studies. No, you're right. And they're beautiful and they're wonderful and they yes. they often get great attention to. I'm just That's right. teasing you. And David's got one, which we're not going to give away, but one in a couple weeks coming oh, out. It's going to get lots of attention. It's a big one. It's a big one. All right. No more shameless self-promotion That's today. Right. Let's That's do right. uh, let's do somebody else's study for That's a change. That's right. Super cool one. It's called How Local Economic Conditions Affect School Finances, Teacher Quality, and Student Achievement Evidence from the Texas Shale Boom. You sent this one around, Mike. You remember? I, I did. And I Ooh. like it. Although I got to say, I need to help these folks work on their titles. I, mean, you know, <laughs> I think that one's like, great. Kaboom, colon, <laughs> and then right. a little long. 
All right. So anyway, yes, it looks at how the Texas boom in shale, oil, and gas drilling with its large and localized effects on wages and the tax base mm-hmm. impacted the schools there. Yeah. So the authors use the variation in shale geology. Got a little I bit. This. I love this. I stuff. got a little <laughs> bit of I'm an edu- out already. I got yeah. an education on this yeah. stuff across school districts to model the impact. Specifically, they use data on the shale depth. That's mm-hmm. the average distance in kilometers from the surface to the shale formation mm-hmm. as a measure of shale richness and a proxy for the district's resource endowment. Oh, that's so cool. How cool is it? Because so, so this is all assuming that, that these districts really do get tax oh, oh, money from you, this. You will hear about that, oh, Mike. Oh, good. Sorry, I'm still educating you on shale. Deeper <sighs> shale tends to have greater pressure, so it's more productive and profitable, by mm-hmm. the way. All right, they compare results in the districts located at the shale formations versus those outside the formations. Mm-hmm. The sample includes over 1,000 school districts for which shale geological data were available. Mm-hmm. It focuses on the shale oil and not the natural gas formations. <laughs> anyway, yeah, okay. uh, districts are followed for 14 years. Years from 2001 to 2014, the district outcomes of interest are school finance, spending, labor market outcomes, composition of the student teacher body and student achievement outcomes. Yep. These are a couple different models, including a district fixed effects models, but both are essentially looking at how the outcomes change over time based on the shale depth I've already told you about. Mm-hmm. They also look at within the within shale sample because we know that non-shale districts can be quite different from those with shale. Do we know that? <laughs> and, and by the way, you would assume this would be all good, right? Oh my gosh, these districts you, will all of a sudden get all this you money. Would this think, must be and great. This is You're just, giving away the plot. It's, it's, it's super interesting. I, Key finding number one, the evidence shows that the percentage of students passing standardized tests in the average shale oil district declined. <gasps> that is mind-blowing. Declined. Relative to districts outside of any shale formation, even relative to districts with below average shale geology, there were no clear differences relative to college completion rates or participation and performance on college entrance exams and attendance rates slightly declined as a result of the boom. These declines are prepare yourself because I had to look three times to make sure my eyes were not getting screwed up with Mm. what I'm about to say. These declines occurred despite the fact that over the entire period, the total tax base of an oil district with average shale depth grew by over, just guess, per student. 100%. $1 million, over $1 million per student over the entire period. Wow. Relative to the non-shale districts. Wait, what is that in percentage terms, though? I I don't know. That's a lot, though. It's a lot. Per student. Per student. I kept staring and looking and staring and flipping and looking. Yeah, this, what? Wow. Again, nearly all of this increase came through an increased oil and gas tax base. Yeah. This led school districts to lower property tax rates, Mm -hmm. of course, borrow more, and spend more. Mm-hmm. Analysts found that most the, of the additional spending went to capital projects mm-hmm. or to service debt, with none going to payroll or teacher salaries. What? Despite the fact that two-thirds, as we know, of total spending goes to payroll, analysts say that the capital spending may stem from the state's focus on equalizing mm-hmm. operational spending but not facility spending across districts. Unlike operational spending, just a little background, districts must fund facilities almost entirely through local property taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but the- But But when you have an expanded tax base, you can issue bonds and service them without increasing property taxes. Mm -hmm. The boom also widened, almost finished, the gap between private and education sector 
wages, specifically the average shale district experienced nearly a 20% increase in the private sector wage. Mm-hmm. Student composition also changed, but in a way that moderated the decline in achievement since there was a decline in the percentage of economically disadvantaged students most likely as a result of this extra family income I was just telling you about. Finally, the boom was linked to increased teacher turnover, and it led to more inexperienced teachers in the classroom. (laughs) Everybody's like, hightailing it out of there. The overall negative effect of shale development on student achievement likely partly stems from this turnover and from the decline in teacher quality. So I think in the end, the boom resulted in some really nice gyms and football fields and and great buildings, right? but not a ton of benefit for students or teachers in particular. Wow. And better opportunities in the labor market Market for the communities writ large. So instead of teaching, they could do other things. Things. Okay. Hey, one more thing. I just got to say, because, you know, people may not understand, but I I have a a streak to me that's very green. I'm environmental. I have always thought that Fordham is the most environmentally friendly education policy thing in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Stiff competition. Uh, (laughs) I mean, should it be said is, I mean, people worry about environmental impact of fracking. I mean, you know, the, what about the, the water, impact? the water gets polluted. Maybe. I mean, are, is that why the test scores mm. went down? The kids got poisoned. Mm, did they look at that? They didn't look at that. Oh, Mike. Well, no, just saying not that, a, that's a possibility, but not probably not these other explanations make more sense. Make a little more sense. I think I mean, wow. there's so many different ways to go with this, Mike. So I don't know which way you want to go, but it made me think of a couple different things. First of all, it's fascinating to me. I mean, the implication, right, is that teachers are basically leaving the classroom to go drill mm-hmm. oil, mm-hmm. which I guess I buy. I mean, well, drill oil or, this, or, or, or something else. Fine. I mean, the, eco, the, economic, the economy's booming. Or they're not right. entering to the become, classroom to begin with. Let's maybe. say yeah. more likely. I mean, the, always the stereotype was they're leaving the classroom to become real estate agents, mm-hmm. which is what so many it, former teachers do, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe they're going to go sell houses that are suddenly selling like hotcakes. I like yeah. your stereotype, yeah. Mike. They're Thanks. quaint, but right. yeah. <laughs> Look, it, it obviously makes you think about just in general, the debate over teacher pay. Mm-hmm. And the notion that, like, there is some real opportunity cost associated with being a teacher still. Yeah. And if we don't increase teacher pay, that opportunity cost will go up the more prosperous America becomes, mm-hmm. right? So at the very least, it seems like we have to, to keep pace. And I am sort of sympathetic to the way the districts view this, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a shale boom, which sort of suggests mm-hmm. there could be a bust, which means maybe yeah. you shouldn't hire mm-hmm. a million people, yeah. right? But That's at the right. same time, yeah. it does seem like the practical te- implications were yeah. that none of the money made it to the classroom. And if which, you give teachers the classroom, then you got to yeah. take away the pay raise later. Like, right. Well, and if I were an educator, it'd be like, well, if not now, when? But, but, but it does sound, but <laughs> right. part of this is the formula, right? I mean, it does sound like if they were trying to turn this into more operational spending, that the Robin Hood kind of formula would suck a bunch of that and send it to the state to be redistributed mm-hmm. to other districts. Mm-hmm. So, right. Right. Uh, you know, which, which again, is just on one of those unintended consequences. We yes. would all say that, you know, we want to help property poor districts mm. be able to afford a good education for the kids. But this is, you know, how do we take mm-hmm. into account the microeconomic conditions, right? right? In other words, in a place that is prosperous, you are going to need to pay those teachers more. There's going to be a higher cost of living. And as you say, David, there's other opportunity costs. That's right. You know, we, we know from Marty West had this study recently, right? That during the Great Recession, we actually got a spike in high quality teachers into the classroom because mm-hmm. there right. were fewer opportunities. opportunities. But we look at that at the national economy. And that was a time when basically everywhere things were hurting, but economic conditions vary. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine in places, you know, where let's say, you know, Rust Belt towns, maybe that, that continued to lose jobs and could be that in a way that's very good for teacher quality, the <laughs> teaching jobs yeah. are the only ones yeah, sure. remaining that are good jobs mm-hmm. for college educated people and who want to live in those communities versus, you know, the challenge in 
booming metro areas or booming shale areas where you just got it. it, it so you what's do, the yeah. answer though? I mean, yeah. what's, the, like, what's the solution to this sort of... Well, I'm just saying that somehow, and I assume this happens already to some degree, but you know, that, that these complex, that this is why the school funding formulas are so complicated because you do want to take some of this stuff into account. You want yeah. to take cost of living into account. Mm-hmm. You don't want right. to pretend that it costs the same in uh, one area as in another to mm-hmm. educate. And part right. of that is because pay teachers more in some of these areas, not just because of cost of living, but because of the labor market. Right. Makes sense to me. All right. I think, yeah, that's probably <laughs> all we have time for today. <laughs> so Fascinating study. I don't know. It is totally a fascinating study. Wow. It's wow. Uh, good stuff. I know. And I didn't know the authors. It was in the journal. It was in the APAM journal, yeah. the policy analysis yeah. uh, it, one. You know, it does on the headline seem to imply that more money doesn't improve schools. But we know that the story is much more complicated. So much more complicated. Because the money didn't actually go into the schools, at least yeah. what happens inside yeah. the schools. Capital buildings. It just makes me want to go to Texas and, and check out some of these school buildings. <laughs> yeah. And, and football fields. And football fields. All right. Good stuff, Amber. Thank you. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapwise Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.